Hey, if you could make your way back in, take some time after the service to talk together, but come on back in and take your seat. Back in high school days, somebody was sure to say, where do you want me to take it? Come on in. I don't often do this, but I did do it a few weeks ago, and I enjoyed it, so I'm going to do it again. I would like to start this morning with a joke. So, that's a clue that at the end of it, what are you supposed to do? Regardless of whether it's funny or not, all right? So, please remember, it's a joke, which means it's not true, all right? So, a new pastor moved to Warsaw and decided that the best way to get to know the people in Warsaw was to go door to door and introduce himself. It went well until he finally came to a house over on Center Street, and he rang the bell and no one answered, and he rang the bell again and no one answered, and he rang it again and no one answered. And so finally, he pulled out one of his brand new nifty little business cards that had his name and the church's name and all that kind of stuff on it, and he wrote on the back of that card a scripture reference, Genesis 3.20, and he stuck it in the door. And then he left. Well, that following Sunday during church, one of the ushers came up and handed him that very card. And underneath his reference that he had written was another reference that was Genesis 3.10. For those of you that perhaps are not Bible scholars, let me tell you what those references are. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you'll open the door, I'll come into you. Genesis 3.10 says, I heard you calling for me, but I was afraid because I was naked. <laughs> All right? Okay. Having now finished our study on the Gospel of John, which we just flew through, uh, I am going to begin today another new exciting series that shouldn't take any more than two or three years. Uh, I'm kidding. What I want to do today, because today is Camp Sunday and we're aware of the fact that many of you here have responsibilities. Our church is very, very actively involved in camp and has been over the years. And so I want to be cognizant of the time. But what I've decided to do this morning is I want to preach a uh, message on the power of the blood. The power of the blood. Now, many of you have been in church a long time. Um, some of you have been, how many of you have been in church? How many of you have been Christians longer than 20 years? Keep your hands up. Longer than 30 years. If, if you don't meet that criteria anymore, you can put your hands down, by the way. Jocelyn, come on. 40 years. 50 years. Whoa, one left. Sister Sharon, wow. Oh, wait, Karen did I, and Bill. Okay, all right, 50, keep your hands back up, Sharon. Bill, 51 years, 52, 53, 54, 55, 60. Oh, you all failed, I'm sorry. Okay, so you've been in church a long time, you've been Christians for a long time. How many of you can tell me the first time the word blood appears in the Bible? 
Now, before you answer, just kind of hold your answer in your mind. You got it? Got it in your mind? Now keep that because we're going to find out at the end of this message when it actually was. And you'll see if you were right, okay? Now, there are themes all throughout the Bible. There are themes like the theme of love, the theme of sin, the theme of grace. But one of the themes throughout the whole Bible is the theme of blood. The word blood actually appears in our Bibles 424 times. As a comparison, the word love appears 361 times. So it's a lot, but not as many. And the word grace, which we love the word grace, grace only appears 148 times. So the sheer number or quantity of occasions in which the word blood appears ought to tell us it has some significance. In fact, God puts such value on the blood that He tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, blood is important. And that verse in Hebrews 9.22 actually harkens back to Leviticus 17.11 which says, For life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. So understanding the power of the blood is immensely important. From the time that sin entered the world, Blood became the means by which forgiveness could be released. When Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with fig leaves as a way for them to cover their own sin. But God comes on the scene and He knew that was not sufficient in Himself. So the Scripture says God took animal skins and He covered them, which means an animal had to be killed and blood had to be shed in order to cover their sin. By the time you move forward several generations just in the book of Genesis, sin had become so prevalent that God came up with a system. He initiated a system whereby man's sin problem could be dealt with. He understood that sin was more than just a failing. Sin was more than just a problem. Sin was a cancer that actually erodes the soul. Sin separates us from God, but it also has the ability to destroy us from the inside out. So in Exodus, God established a means whereby our sin could be dealt with, and it happened in what was called the tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses. <coughs> the tabernacle of Moses was kind of like a, uh, a church on wheels. It was like a portable church that they could take anywhere. But within the tabernacle confines was what was called the altar. And animals would be sacrificed. He devised a system called animal sacrifices where an animal could be brought, the blood could be spilt, and it could be put upon the corners of the horns of the altar. And then the Scripture says that once a year, just once a year, the high priest would take some of that blood that represented the sins of the entire nation now again, remember, you've got all the individual animals, the one-year-old, perfect, spotless, without blemish lambs and goats that are being slain for your individual sin. But once a year, he would take the blood of a bull 
and he would go into the Holy of Holies, which represented God's presence. And there upon the Ark of the Covenant, he would put that blood, he would sprinkle it upon it in order that the sins of the people could be dealt with. And Leviticus 17.11, which we looked at already, says the blood made atonement for our sin. The word atonement, by the way, occurs over a hundred times in the Bible. And the word atonement literally means covering. Covering. So if you think about it kind of like this, um, let me see if I can do this without destroying everything. This is sin. Let's call this sin for now, okay? So this is sin. And what atonement would do is it says it covered sin. So it's almost like they would take the blood and the blood would cover the sin. That's what it says. The blood atones for or covers our sin. Now, that idea of sin being covered by the blood became so prevalent, and it's even prevalent today, that there are many people today who believe and maybe some of you even, and if this somehow bothers your theological little idea, I'm sorry, but I want to bring some level of understanding to you. There are those who believe today that Jesus' blood covers their sin so that when God looks at them, He sees the blood. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? When God looks at me, He doesn't see me, He sees the blood. In other words, what they're saying is, God Almighty the all-knowing, the omniscient, the omnipresent, the omnipotent God who knows the beginning from the end is tricked by the blood. We're saying in effect that the blood covers. Now, every once in a while, the sin peeks out again and then we put it back under the blood and we play this little game of the blood covering our sin. And that's what many people even today still believe. Now, I think God is merciful I think he's patient regarding our errors in theology because the truth is, if you've lived long enough, you will know that when it comes to our understanding of God, our understanding of theology, every one of us is wrong. Every one of us sees in part, knows in part, understands in part. We never get it all right. So every one of us, we have to take the posture of, this is what I believe, but God, you can always increase my understanding. And he does that. I had a teacher at school I used to love, Fount Schultz. Some of you might know Fount. Fount used to come along, and when he would teach class, he would start his class, and he would say, this at the beginning of the semester, first class, he would say, what I'm going to teach you today is heresy. He says, because heresy is anything less than the truth. And what I'm going to teach you is what I believe is the truth, but probably by tomorrow, God will give me greater truth. And that's kind of what we do in life. We come to an understanding. How many of you have understood things more about God today than you did 15 years ago? You have understood something of His kindness, His mercy, His grace, His love that you've never understood before. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about. So this idea, though, of the covering of the blood is prevalent throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And it came to a head on what was called the Day of Atonement. That day in which the high priest would take the blood for the whole nation and go into the Holy of Holies. And there he would make, and the term that is used, he would make expiation. He would make payment for our sin because sin requires a payment. Sin requires, as it were, 
a pound of flesh. But in this case, blood. And that's prevalent throughout the whole Old Testament. Now, if you're in any way a Bible scholar at all, you've studied the Bible, you've read the Bible, you've been to church long enough, you know that there is more to the blood than just this. In fact, a good hint would be John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist is down at the River Jordan baptizing? Jesus comes along. What does John cry out? Behold, who, who takes away, not just covers. So keep that in your mind as we're moving forward today. Now, back to the Old Testament. Probably the greatest example of atonement, of the blood covering in all of the Bible, is what we call the Passover. You remember, Israel had been taken captive. They were enslaved in Egypt. There they were forced to work hard labor. And God comes along and He's going to set His people free. He goes to the king of Egypt through the man Moses, who is their deliverer, and he goes to that king and he says, God Almighty says, let my people go. Pharaoh didn't want him to go. Pharaoh was kind of like his official title. He didn't want him to go. He wanted his slave laborers to stay there. And so God sent along what we call plagues. Each plague was intended to do two things. It was intended, number one, to attack the God of that nation. So every plague had a connection, specific connection, to a God that the nation of, Israel, or of Egypt worshipped. So number one, it attacked their gods to show that they weren't as great as they thought they were. But number two, it was to convince Pharaoh that God was who he says he is, and you better heed his commandment to let his people go. These plagues go on for quite some time. And then we come finally to the last plague, the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was where God said to Pharaoh, I'm going to cause my death angel to come over Egypt and all of the firstborn of Egypt, from the lowest slave's child to the highest in Pharaoh's own court, even to the firstborn of the animals, every firstborn is going to die. But then God does this amazing thing. He sets a, a barrier, a barrier of protection, a hedge around His people. And the way in which that was enacted was they were told to take a sheep and to kill that sheep. And then they were to take the blood and they were to put it upon the lintel and upon the doorpost. And God says, when I see the blood covering your house, I will pass over you and the death angel will not come nigh you. So that's probably the premier example in the Old Testament. But another really good one, if you move forward 40, 45 years or so in time, was by this point, God had delivered His people. They had come out of Egypt, and they're getting ready to go into a land that God had promised to them. And then what Joshua does, because Moses has gone off the scene, he's gone up to the mountain, and he's died, Joshua's now leading the people. He sends two spies into the land. Kind of, like a, a, kind of like a scouting kind of trip. Just to see, like, what's the best way to do this? God's giving us to it. How are we going to do it? And they come to the city of Jericho. And they're kind of spying out Jericho. And the local police heard that there were spies from Israel there. So they start searching for them in order to do them harm. They were going to actually kill them. And so they come to the house of a woman by the name of Rahab. 
And Rahab takes them into her house and she hides them from the local militiamen. And then when they leave and these two spies are getting ready to now escape the city, they turn to Rahab and said, because of your kindness, we're actually going to preserve you because God's going to come and He's going to destroy this whole city, Jericho. Jericho was this huge walled city. He says, God's going to come and He's going to destroy the entire city. But you and your family, if you will go into your house and stay in your house, you will be saved. But the way we will know where it is, is you must take a scarlet or a red cord, tie it to like your window frame, and let it hang out the wall of the city, and we will know it is your house, and we will not destroy that building or you as long as you stay under the covering of the red cord. And I have no doubt those spies had heard stories from their parents about how God had protected them in the Passover. So all of that is part of the expression of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, about how the blood covers or the blood atones. But is that really all there is to it? Is that all that the blood does? Does our blood perpetually Or does our sin perpetually hide behind a curtain of blood, but we all really know it's there? It's just undercover. Well, for those of you that have uh, been around a little while, you know there's got to be more to it because God has far more to say about it even in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. In fact, God tells us, by the way, unlike what I've heard some people preach, God tells us that the law, which would include, by the way, the ceremonial law and the sacrificial law that we've just been talking about, God says that law was perfect because it came from a perfect God. But that law was not the end. That law was to be a tutor or a roadmap leading us to something that was going to be better. And that's where this is all going. So, if you have your Bibles, look at Hebrews chapter 9 with me, if you would. Think about the fact that God says this animal that you're going to sacrifice has to be perfect. Has to be perfect without spot or blemish, not a burr in its fur, nothing. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been raised on a farm, but how many animals did you have that were ever perfect? None. God accepted it but there was none perfect as God had called for. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, or another translation says, an everlasting release. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, 
that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So if you think about it this way, here is sin that has entered the world. Sin comes upon mankind. This is you and me. Sin comes, and whether we like it or not, even a little bit affects us dramatically. And we have to keep adding more and more and more because the blood continues to cover. But that's a problem because we want more than just the blood to cover us. We want to be cleansed. He's saying that all of those Old Testament sacrifices were effective after a sort. But the problem was they were a temporary solution for an eternal problem. He says in chapter 10, if you want to turn up to chapter 10, verse 1, <coughs> for the law, that's what we've been looking at, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year after year after year, make those who approach perfect for they would have ceased to be offered if they were perfect. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, hear this, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Every year when they would go on the Day of Atonement and make sacrifices for their sin, they would be reminded of their very sin. It would constantly be in front of their faces. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Every year, every single year, they would take this nearly as perfect as possible offering. And they would give it to the priest. And it would be killed. And the blood would be offered. But every single year, your sin was brought to the forefront. Now, I don't know what your experience has been. But how many of you have come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness for your sins only to sin again? Any of you? Sin twice? Three times, Gary. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Now four. See, the problem is this. The sacrifice that was offered you felt good. I'm cleansed. Although, you've you got to admit, don't you think they wondered if their animal was good enough to really work? Don't you think they ever had thoughts just like you and I do? But say that particular year, the priest looks at it and he inspects it, which they had to do every time. <coughs> and the priest says, oh, this one is really good. This is probably the best lamb I've seen this year. This is good. And so you feel a little bit better because you performed better. But that lamb was slain, the blood was offered, and you felt good. You felt clean. The blood covers my sin. And then a day or two later, you sin again. What do you do? According to the Scripture, you wait another year. Now, there, there are those of you who are Bible scholars, you're going to say, wait, where, couldn't you go make... No, actually, you could make sin offerings, or they were called guilt offerings again, but they were usually tied to another act you were doing. So the Scripture says, if you're going to make a vow before God, before you make a vow before God, you better make sure your soul is clean. So now make a guilt offering first where you would bring another lamp and have that slain. 
But how many times do you do it before the priest looks at you a little bit oddly and says, what's wrong with you? You're always coming. There's something wrong here. You're supposed to be forgiven. The blood is supposed to cover. The very system that was intended to save you constantly reminded you that it really didn't, that you had to come back again and again and again. Look at verse 11. What was the better way? The writer told us it was a shadow of things to come. The better way, verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Did you hear that? That's what he just said. The writer of Hebrews, God's own word, says those sacrifices can never take away sin. They can only cover it. That's what it did. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstools, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Christ came to deal a death blow to our sin. Not just to cover it, but to actually wash it away. Isn't that what we sang this morning? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the only offering that will last eternally. But here is the amazing thing. He says he offered one sacrifice eternally, forever. Every sin that we could ever commit, past, present, or future, has been dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ. And not just covered over, not just temporarily covered, but has actually cleansed it. So here is Christ. He comes on the scene and He says, oh, you have a sin problem. I don't want you to have to deal with this anymore. So Christ, it says, pours His life into us until suddenly our sins are washed away. We no longer have to deal with it anymore because our sins are. But not only that, it says He came that His blood might cleanse the sins of the whole world. So He comes and He takes the world's sins and He washes it back away. And then it says, all of that has been absorbed in Christ until there is nothing that is left of sin that has any power over us whatsoever. That is the truth of what Christ has done for us. Now that seems like, this, this is like an illustration that I saw when I was a little kid in Sunday school. But it has stuck with me through the years. That He didn't come just to cover any longer. The covering has been taken away. Now our sins have been washed away. Listen to these verses. And you don't have to turn there, just listen to them. Let them kind of wash over your soul, if you would. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. I think I might even have them up there, but you can just listen to them. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 1.18 Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. For He Himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21 made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And then Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood 
of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that God will forgive your sins if you ask nicely. You know, a lot of times we feel like if I can only get my posture just perfect, if I could only get my tone right, my attitude right, then maybe God will forgive me. But sometimes I come and I just say, okay, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. And we wonder, well, maybe he thinks I don't really mean it. So now I have to cry some tears. So I put some eye drops in my eyes to make me cry a little bit, to make me feel more spiritual. So all of that is to make me feel like something is happening. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God will forgive your sins. The good news is that God has already forgiven your sins. That is something for us to hold on to forever. Now, it's true that the sacrifice won't do any good. Jesus' blood won't do you one bit of good if you don't receive it, if you don't let it speak for you, work on your account. Going around and feeling guilty and trying to somehow pay God back in some way to try to make up for what you did actually does disservice and dishonor to the blood of Jesus Christ. He's already paid the full price. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that the early saints look forward to every time they offered a sheep or a goat or a bull. They look forward to this time. I want to end with one final Old Testament story today about the blood. Way back in the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve when sin had entered the world, <clears throat> they had a couple of young boys. Cain and Abel were their names. Cain was a farmer, a uh, vineyard planter. He, he, he did stuff on the ground. You know, he, he, He's kind of like, uh, I, I think of him kind of like a, a Pete Miller. You know, he's just like, he, he likes to grow things. It's just kind of like what he did. You know, you want beans, you want tomatoes. That, that's kind of what Cain did. Abel was not that. Abel was kind of a hunter kind of guy and kind of, he kind of combines in there. Um, and so Abel, at one point, brings an offering to God of his sacrifice that God received. He loved it. Cain did not. And I think there are reasons. I don't think it's just because Cain brought produce. I think there are other reasons why his sacrifice was not acceptable to God. And Cain gets mad, and God even says to him, you know, Sin is knocking at your door. Don't let it have mastery over you. But Cain stays angry, and one day he invites his brother out into the field, and it says he killed his brother and he buried him. Got rid of him. And one day, God comes on the scene, and God says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says this in Genesis 4.10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God was saying, though you might have killed the body, you couldn't kill the blood. Though you might have thought you were trying to shut him up, you can't shut up the blood. Cain thought he had the last word, but the truth is the blood had the last word. The blood cried out for justice. Move forward several millennia now. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's been beaten. He's been bruised. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. Uh, he's nails through his wrists and through his feet. He's hanging upon a cross. 
a soldier comes along, takes a spear and sticks him in the side and it says blood and water flowed out. Where do you think the blood and water went to? It went into the ground. I want you to know that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that if the principalities and powers that were behind all of the hatred and anger that was at the killing of Jesus, if they had known what they were going to do, they would never have done it. But they killed them. And I'm sure, I'm sure the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes thought, finally we've shut him up. He's causing too much trouble. I am sure the principalities and powers thought, we finally got God in human form and we've killed God. That's the end. And they're down in the abyss of hell having a party. Everything is just all exciting. And out of the gloom of hell, all of a sudden this figure comes striding according to 1 Peter. And as he gets nearer and nearer to them, they can see that his eyes blaze like fire. And it says his face glowed like the sun. And suddenly, the imps of hell and Satan himself realize this is Jesus Christ. And he's standing in front of us, still alive. And I can just see Jesus. In, in my mind, you'll forgive me, but this is kind of how I think. I can see Jesus walking up to him and say, uh, Guys, I think you started the party a bit too early. I think you popped the cork a little too soon. Maybe you better put this party on hold. The truth is, Jesus Christ, His blood, did something that the enemy could never have envisioned. Because God has counsel that was hidden even from the angels that was only shared among the Godhead. And then the scripture says, and John tells us in Revelation, Jesus took from Satan the keys of death and hell. He now has control of your life. No longer are you under the sway or the power of the enemy. That which he has purposed for evil has no power because the blood has spoken. See, he thought he could shut Jesus up, but here he is 2,000 years later and Jesus' blood is still speaking a better way. Now, one other thing that's interesting about Cain and Abel, going backwards now, God says to Cain, who had tilled the ground and been a very successful farmer, he says, because the blood has gone into the ground, what the ground used to produce for you, it will no longer work for you. You will no longer have success as a farmer. It won't produce because the blood has changed the very fiber of it. Well, I want you to understand that's a type of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus came into the enemy territory because planet Earth had been deeded over to him because of the fall of man. God had given to Adam the rights to this planet, and when Adam sinned, he gave those rights to Satan. Jesus comes into the enemy's territory, <coughs> and when his blood dripped upon the earth, it changed the very fiber of the earth. And what that means is that which... The enemy has done for generations even curses that have been placed over your life from generations. Things that he's held sway over in your past, he no longer has the ability to be fruitful in that area anymore because the blood has gone into the ground. He no longer owns this planet. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So what I wanted you to get today in this very simple level of, of understanding is that we are no longer just hiding our sins. Hiding your sin doesn't do you any good or anybody else. The sin that we deal with on a day-by-day -day basis, our future sin and our past sin, has already been cleansed 
by Jesus Christ. John tells us that in the last days they will overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, both are necessary. You have to have the blood of the Lamb that cleanses our sin, but our testimony has to be that I believe in faith, that that which His blood cries out, which is God's justice has been paid, is effective for me. That's my testimony. And that needs to be your testimony. So the blood has purchased everything for us. So what I want to encourage you this morning, especially as you're looking at your week, whatever your week might entail, maybe for some of you it's camp. Maybe for some of you, you've come today into church and you're not in a good place. Maybe for some of you, you actually have some sin that is weighing upon your own soul that you are aware of in your own life. I'm not talking about some grievous thing, but it could be anything. You know, you've had a bad attitude or, or maybe you were driving down the road and somebody cut in front of you and you called them a jerk the other day. I don't know who did that. But um, you have things that weigh upon your soul and you're saying, I'm not in a great place for this week at camp. Or maybe for you, it's just at work. I'm not in a good place. I want you to do, um, years ago, um, I don't know how many of you guys remember, we used to do like, uh, this goes back years, years. Uh, we used to like march around the church sometimes, so that. Well, one of the times we marched around the church, we would cry again and again, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. That might sound simple and stupid. It might even be embarrassing for some of you. But for some of you, you need to plead the blood over your family. Because the blood is the power of God. You need to plead the blood over your health, over your finances, over your children, over your marriage. I know it can... I'm sure people looking at you would say, you're just, you look kind of foolish. But honestly, who cares? The blood is more powerful than their view of me. The blood has purchased it all. The reason why uh, your rearview mirror is smaller than your windshield is because where you've been isn't as important as where you're going. The blood has purchased salvation for you. And where you're going is better than this. So, I'm going to ask that, we're going to end today because I know we got camp issues, time schedule, all that. So I'm going to ask if you would just stand with me. <clears throat> Sometimes it's a longer way up. I want you to close your eyes for a minute if you would. You're standing here, eyes closed, but I want you to stand straight. Stand up as straight as you can. Stand strong. Because you have been cleansed. You have been washed by the blood of Jesus. You are, as we sang this morning, a child of God. You no longer need to fear that anything that you have ever done or anything you have ever possibly going to do is going to change who you are. Your position is secure in God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do to change that. You are a blood-bought child of God. So I want you to stand there for just a minute. Stand straight and strong like you're at attention and say, that's who I am. God loves me. He gave His life for me. He shed His blood for me. That's who I am. The fact that He would give His blood for me must mean I'm worth something to Him. I'm not a nobody. I'm a somebody because of Him. He thought I was valuable enough to purchase me with His own blood.
So I'm not going to stand around cringing like a little victim any longer. I'm not going to act like I have nothing when the truth is He has caused all grace to abound to me because I am His. He has given me all that I need for life and godliness. He has purchased all according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's who I am today. I'm standing as His son, as His daughter. I don't stand as a victim any longer. It's no longer my circumstances that control me. It's not my attitude that controls me. It's not how I wake up this morning and whether I had coffee yet or not that controls me. It is His blood that purchased everything for me. I am a child of God. We no longer have to wonder if it's enough. We no longer have to worry about whether it's fully covered or not. The blood washes it all away. Father, in the name of Christ, I pray that the reality of this, a very simple teaching, but the reality of it would dawn upon us that we are blood-bought children of God and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all unrighteousness. There is nothing that is outside. Lord, there's never a point where you think to yourself, oh my, I didn't see that one coming. Oh, I'm going to have to make special sacrifice. The truth is, Jesus' blood was more than enough. So Lord, help us to receive that fully today. Lord, if perchance there be anyone here who not know you, I pray that they would lay claim to your blood today. That they would walk as your child because everything changes because of the blood. No longer the blood of bulls and goats, but now the blood of our Savior. Let that become the power that we walk in day by day. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. And I'm sure you camp people know what you're supposed to be doing. Into the fellowship hall.